Would you all pray with me? God of the wilderness, God of peace, we pray this morning that you would speak your word to us, that we would hear your voice calling out to us in the wilderness, in this place, and when we leave this place. We pray that it would be your voice that speaks to us, calming our disbelief and inviting us to new life sustained by your word. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in my office and I was being interviewed for a podcast. If you don't know what a podcast is, it's like a radio show that you listen to on demand through your smartphone or a computer. And so the premise of this podcast is to help preachers like me or Pastor Ed or even Sam who's preaching downstairs today, help people like us get ready for Sunday morning. Because believe it or not, having the most public part of your job also being the most nerve-wracking part of your job makes for an anxiety-filled week. So the purpose of this interview was to help my peers get ready for the week that was ahead of them. And so to prove my credibility, the interviewer asked me the very first question, Tier, tell the listeners who you are. Who am I? Well, those were three words that stumped me. And if you know me, I love to talk. So for the purposes of this interview, I knew what I was supposed to say. I was supposed to rattle off my professional and educational accolades. I was supposed to talk about my two degrees, my two graduate degrees from Wesley Theological Seminary. I was supposed to talk about my experience with all of you here at Mount Olivet and how no one, not a single person, would ever get up in the middle of a sermon to come get pretzels because they were hungry because the sermon was going too long. But the more I began to think about it, I have to be more than what my LinkedIn profile says or what my latest sermon or blog post was. And then that brought me to the next question. Doesn't this interviewer already know me? Couldn't he just do this himself? After all, Taylor and I have known each other for nearly a decade. We've been friends for at least five years. This is an absolutely moronic question. And so then, in my anxiety-induced existential moment of crisis, I somehow stumbled through describing my family. I threw in a pet that I'm pretty sure we actually don't have. I talked about you all in some form or another. I hope it was glowing. And then I ended this introduction of myself by proclaiming that Allison and I, my wife, in our home, we have three ways by which we can brew coffee. (laughs) And as those words left my mouth, I cringed. I couldn't take those back. And it's going to live in the glory of the internet forever. Really, dear? I mumbled to myself. That was the best that you could come up with. 
And then in that moment, through my mumbling, the listeners of this podcast would learn that I talk over myself when I'm meaning to talk just in my own head. Because the interviewer, well, he looked at me really well through the computer, and he goes, excuse me? Clearly, I mumbled louder than I meant to. The only thing sillier in that moment than the question was my response of having three ways to brew coffee. I don't want to diminish my family, certainly not my wife and kids, and I don't want to diminish any of you, especially those of you who are on the Staff Parish Relations Committee. But I am way more than three ways to brew coffee. I mean, I would have been better off mentioning that I can rock a French tuck. I have a great head of hair. I have an obsession with Weber grills, and I have a knack. It's a genuine skill that I have to find parking spots, cheap parking spots, in or around National Stadium. I really hope I didn't just jinx myself for next month. The waters of Jesus' baptism had barely time to dry before the Spirit of God led Christ from the Jordan River into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. The writers of the Gospel of Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus spent 40 days in the desert, in the wilderness. But Matthew... The gospel writer of Matthew takes us a step further and assures us that in in addition to 40 days in the desert, Christ spent 40 nights in the desert. This wasn't an eight-hour fast. Christ did not go back to the comfort of his home or a hotel. Jesus spent 40 nights in the wilderness as well. These 40 days in the desert, in the wilderness, echoed Israel's time, their time in exile, their time wandering in the wilderness. When Israel was hungry as they journeyed with Moses, God provided manna, bread from heaven, to calm their hungry bellies. And the devil, knowing just who Jesus is and what Christ is capable of, invited Christ to end his fast by turning the rocks on the ground into bread. Jesus quoting Moses from Israel's time in the wilderness said, It is written that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Next, the devil invited Jesus to prove God, to prove the existence of God, to prove his own divinity. And again, going back and quoting Moses, Jesus responded by saying, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to test. Finally, having been invited to claim worldly success and prestige for himself, Jesus rebuked Satan, saying, Away with you, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only God. 
These were three times when Jesus was tempted at the end of his 40 days, and he chose to not use his own power or his own authority to dismiss his tempter. Instead, Christ leaned into the word of God, the same word that had been given to Moses while Israel was in the wilderness. This is the same word that sustained Israel during its time outside of their home. Jesus refused to be the person that Satan had invited him to be in the same way that we often tempt or we petition God to prove God's self to us so that then and only then we might believe and we might follow Christ. Temptation and sin are a part of our everyday lives. There's a long-standing tradition and history within the church of withholding certain things, fasting during this purple-hued season that we find ourselves in as we await the coming of Easter. Many of us will withhold intentionally from a sin or series of sins that we've been participating in while others will choose to remove a distraction or a temptation from our lives so that we can refocus, we can reorient, it's repenting, and turn back towards God. Even the best of us, at the best of times, has fallen to the temptation of sin. Marietta Schultz, she's the founder of the Episcopal School in Los Angeles, and she's the former dean of the Yale Divinity School, she put it like this. Temptation comes to us in moments when we look at others and we feel insecure about not having enough. Temptation comes in judgments we make about strangers or friends who make choices that we don't understand. Temptation rules us, making us able to look away from those in need and to live our lives unaffected by poverty, hunger, and disease. Temptation rages in moments when we allow our tempter to define our lives or when addiction to wealth, power, influence over others, vanity, or an inordinate need to control defines who we are. Temptation wins when we engage in the justification of small lies, small sins, a racist joke, a questionable business practice for the greater good, a criticism of a friend, partner, or spouse when he or she are not around. Temptation wins when we get so caught up in the trappings of life that we lose sight of life itself. These are the faceless moments of evil that, while mundane, lurk in the recesses of our lives and our souls. Instead of being spiritual fire for our own temptation to sin, Jesus' time in the wilderness, it's the beginning of this gospel-long process of revealing the person of Christ. This is just the beginning of the realization of the fullness of God in Christ to us, all of humanity. 
These temptations faced by Christ as he was exiting the wilderness reveal more to us about Jesus than they do ourselves. These temptations faced by Christ in the wilderness are just that, his temptations and not ours. This is a scene in Matthew's gospel about what Christ has done and what Christ will continue to do for humanity. It is in learning who Jesus is, revealed through his life, death, and his resurrection, that we are able to heed the words of St. Paul and adopt the attitude that was with Christ. We can't adopt a self-emptying obedience to Christ until we first see that his obedience to the will of God was unwavering. His obedience to the will of God is what fills in the gaps created by our disobedience, our turning away from God's will. Obedience to the will of God has never been and will never be forced upon us. Every single day when we respond to those silly questions of, who am I? We have the option to turn away from God and to turn back towards ourselves. The season of Lent is a time when we intentionally deny ourselves the, temp- the temptations of this world. And we turn back towards the faithfulness of Christ. But we're crazy to think that this season of fasting somehow, in some way, makes us better people. The church is not about learning how to become good, though you might become good in the process of being part of a community like this. We're not here because we need to learn how to be good. We are here, as St. Paul said in his letter to to the Galatians, to hear that we've been rescued from our inability to be good. God is willing to risk our disobedience in hopes that we will freely turn towards God and proclaim that we are followers. We have adopted Christ's obedience and that we have adopted the attitude of Jesus Christ. Not adoption and following up to a certain point. Not adoption and following with an asterisk or prerequisite that you know, God must first do this to prove something in hopes that we might repent and follow Christ. Throughout our Lenten journey together, we will turn towards Christ, turning away from the temptations of this world, the temptation of sin, and we will consider the question, who am I? It can often feel as though we are people who when presented with the discomfort of this world or temptation, We will lean into the comforts of this world through our own devices and our own means. But this Lenten journey that we begin this week, we begin with ash on our foreheads and will culminate in Christ riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. This is an invitation for us to lean away from ourselves and into Christ's faithfulness. Our faithfulness to our Lenten fasts will wane. We will be tempted to break our fasts or to test God's 
faithfulness as a way to ignore the suffering around us or to accept the trappings of this life. This journey that we find ourselves on, a journey that ultimately leads us into Jerusalem and to the cross, it is an invitation to lean heavily, fully into the faithfulness of Christ as our own faithfulness wanes. The good news is that the proclamation that was still echoing as Christ left the Jordan River and went into the wilderness, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. That is the same proclamation that was made by God when the waters of baptism were drying on your head. Because by water and the Spirit, you are in Christ. His belovedness is now yours. So let's go back for a moment to that silly question I was asked. Who am I? I'm a sinner. When push comes to shove, I will fall into the temptation of sin. I am fallen. But more importantly, salvation, my salvation is not up to me. It's not up to my ability to hold a fast during Lent or overcome my own temptation to sin. Regardless of what I have or what I have not given up for Lent, regardless of how well I hold this fast, I am God's beloved, in whom, for, the, for Christ's sake, God is well pleased. Amen. Amen.